Please turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, to Genesis chapter 12. Our uh, sermon text for this morning is really Genesis 12, 10 through the end of the chapter. We're just going to read a little bit wider for some of the context. We're going to read Genesis 12, 8 through 13, 4. But before we read that, let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for your promises, some of, which, some of which we just sang about. We thank you that we do not need to fear because you are the Lord. And Father, I pray that you would teach us more about that right now as we open your word, as we look at this story of Abraham, uh, as we grow in our understanding of who you are as the Lord and of your sovereign care for your people. Uh, teach us about that, show us Jesus clearly in the scriptures, and encourage and enable us and equip us to walk by faith, even in the face of fear. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis 12, beginning in verse 8. From there, Abram moved to the hill country of the east, on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. Now there was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife, then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake he dealt well with Abram, and he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you have done? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister, so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and Lot with him into the Negev. Now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver, and in gold. And he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at the first, and there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. There is a new movie called Luck, and it's about a girl who grew up in an orphanage uh, but ages out when she turns 18, and she's about the unluckiest person alive. Eventually, she meets a lucky cat, and adventure ensues. And, and what is fascinating about the movie to me are those moments when they explained bad luck. Bad luck, it was eventually discovered, was good or at least important. 
It taught you how to persevere and brought you into good situations which would not have happened otherwise. And so in the end, bad luck is really good, the movie says. Movies that attempt to explain providence are fascinating. It shows that there is something in our hearts that desires and even demands an explanation. Life is not random. And even when it seems to be, we want an explanation. We, we can't accept that life, even dumb bad luck, is meaningless. It can't be. And of course, we are right. There is meaning to our trouble. But it's not because there is a luck world that doles out good and bad luck to maintain some cosmic balance, which in the end is actually all good. It is because there is a God who is in control and is writing His story in our lives. And the question is, do you believe that? And if you do believe that, how does that shape the way we live day by day? Abram was a pilgrim. God had called him to leave Ur of the Chaldeans and go to the land that God would show him. And and Scripture tells us uh, that this picture of Abram as a pilgrim is a foretaste of our pilgrimage as we wander through the wilderness of this present age and journey toward the promised land of the new creation to come. And as we look at this next leg of Abram's journey, we will see three things. First, God has made big promises Second, in the world, you will have trouble. And third, through trouble, God will fulfill his purposes. So first, God has made big promises. God called Abram out of Ur of the Chaldeans to go to the land that he would show him. And Abram, in faith, left Ur and eventually came to the promised land, Canaan. He walked through the promised land, building altars as he went. It was a kind of consecration of the land to God, uh, claiming it in God's name as God had promised. And right at the beginning of Abram's story, and we've looked at these verses a couple of times now, but we're going to read them one more time, uh, we have uh, chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, where we, we read, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God promises Abram a great name, a great nation, a great blessing to all the earth. And these are not small promises, right? God is essentially saying to Abram, I am going to restore the world through you and through your offspring. All nations will again be blessed. What was lost in Adam will be restored in Abram. And as we read the the Abraham story and really the whole Old Testament, these promises will only be heightened as we go. They'll come into greater focus until, of course, we get to the New Testament where Jesus comes and God begins to actually fulfill those promises to Abram. And Paul will say of Jesus in 2 Corinthians 1.20, for all the promises of God find their yes in him. And as you turn through the pages of the New Testament, you find really dozens of promises. There are promises of God's presence and peace, of safety and security, of comfort and provision. And I wonder, do you realize how big these promises are? He promises to reconcile you to himself, to forgive all your sins, to fill you with his spirit, 
and to give you a new family, uh, to be with you no matter what, to make you into a new person, to strengthen you to overcome sin. In fact, God's promises in the New Testament include nothing less than life without sin or sickness forever in a perfect world. No more temptation or tears, no more sin or sadness, no more guilt and no more pain. How does that sound? It should sound amazing. Uh, To some, it sounds too good to be true. To others, it, it sounds like a license to begin to demand from God whatever we want now. But I wonder, do you believe them? Do you believe those promises? Do you believe the promises of of God? Do you believe that they are yes in Jesus? Do you believe God's word that he has said he will make all things new? Well, if you do, that may bring up a question. You might think, "Well, well, wait a minute. If God has really promised all these things, why? Just why, right? Why all the pain? Why all the sadness? Why all the temptation and the guilt? If God has promised, it seems as if God's promises have failed. Which brings us to our next point. In the world, you will have trouble. At the moment of Abram's triumph of faith, as he marched through the promised land, consecrating his life and the land to Yahweh, there is a problem. Verse 10 says there was a famine in the land. Now, we need to feel the the, the weight of this statement. At creation, God caused the plants to grow. He gave every plant to humanity for food. He provided abundantly for Adam and Eve. But with the advent of sin and the curse, the land no longer provides as was intended. Famine is a sign of the curse. Famine is a sign of the, the brokenness of the present age. Suddenly, Abram, still on the mountaintop of his first days of walking uh, in faith, is smacked in the face with the brokenness of the present world. And this often happens to us, doesn't it? Especially with new Christians, right? They come to Christ, everything is good. They experience the first fruits of God's forgiving mercy. Their guilt has been removed. Sin's power has been broken. Their lives seem transformed. Everything seems to be going amazing. And suddenly, bam. Some difficulty or tragedy or temptation elbows its way into their lives. What do you do in that moment? How do you respond? Well, notice how Abraham responded. No sooner does he come into the promised land than he leaves it. Uh, You you, want to say, leaving so soon, Abraham? What's going on? How does Abraham respond to the famine? I, I would suggest he responds not in faith but in fear. God told him to go to the land that he would show him, and Abram is leaving. There has been no further word from God, no clarification, no no exception clause. Abram simply responds in fear. And notice he doesn't go to Egypt to get food. That's not what we're told. Uh, This is no trip to the grocery store, right? He, He goes, verse 10 says, to sojourn there because the famine was great. You might say, we shouldn't be so hard on Abram. I mean, perhaps uh, some point out, Egypt is not this big bad place at this point in the story that it is later. And yet, even here in Genesis at this point, Egypt is a son of Ham, uh, according to Genesis 10.6. You can go listen to the the sermon on Genesis 10 or read through Genesis 10 to see what that means. Uh, Whatever it means, it means he's already lumped in with the rest of Israel's sworn enemies already in the story. 
And while Egypt hasn't done anything wrong at this point in the story, remember who Moses is writing to, the recently freed Israelite slaves. In their mind, that the mind of the original readers, Egypt was definitely a bad thing, the place of oppression, slavery, and death. The later prophets would repeatedly rebuke Israelite kings for trusting in Egypt. But of course, they were just doing what their first father did at the first sign of trouble. Now, it only gets worse uh, before it gets better. In fact, it gets much worse. When Abram gets to Egypt, his fear only grows. Sure, Egypt had the Nile River, so plenty of fertile land for crops, but Abram was powerless. And we read this in verses 11 through 13. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a beautiful, you, you are a woman beautiful in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. Now, uh, Sarai was clearly a beautiful woman because the Egyptians did take notice. Now, uh, some have pointed out that, that she was not a young woman even at this point. But remember two things. Uh, first, the, the effects of the fall and sin on the human body had not taken the toll on people that they have in our day, uh, hence the longer lifespans of the patriarchs. You remember we've talked about that in the past. And so growing old right, is a result of the fall, as death is, and it takes hold progressively over time. Uh, but also consider, as one commentator put it, that, I uh, quote, ideas of feminine beauty in traditional societies differ from ours. Well-endowed matronly figures, not slim youthful ones, tend to represent their ideal of womanhood. So, so Sarai is pictured as this ideal of womanhood in that day. And so Abram was afraid. He was afraid of what might happen to him. Uh, so in verse 13, Abram tells Sarai to lie, or at least to tell a half-truth. Uh, she was his half-sister, after all, we find out later in the story, but she was also his wife. They conveniently leave that part out. And the goal is, according to Abram, so that it may go well with me. Now, th th this phrase would likely set off alarm bells for the average Israelite. That it may go well with you was a phrase used to refer to the result of obedience to God's law. Abram is seeking the blessing of obedience through deception. And this can't end well. Again, notice what's going on. Abram is afraid, so he takes matters into his own hands. First, he is afraid of starvation, so he leaves the promised land. Second, he is afraid of violence, so he lies about Sarai. Abram's fears do make sense, don't they? I mean, if there's no food, you might go hungry. And remember back to Genesis 6, one of the reasons for the flood was that rulers were taking any women they chose and violence was running rampant. And so Abram's day must have seemed to him no better than the days before the flood. Rulers who take whom they choose and violence is everywhere. Well, what about you? What are you afraid of? For some, it is, where will my next meal come from? Uh, for some, it is COVID-19. For others, it is what will happen if people find out I'm a Christian? Uh, will they lump me in with, quote, those other Christians, whoever they happen to be for you? 
What will happen if I speak up at work? Will I lose my job? Will I be shunned by coworkers or classmates? Uh, for some, it is, is what, what's going on in our country? Some are afraid of the, the rapid pace of change. Some are afraid of the backlash. Some are afraid just to walk out their door. Uh, sickness and violence and finances and the future and every unknown under heaven, we live in a fallen and broken world. There are plenty of reasons to be afraid. Yet one commentator put Abram's situation like this. He said, quote, the prime importance of the story is its bearing on the promise of land and people. Uh, This is the true theme of these chapters, with Abram's vision under constant challenge. Here, at the first touch of hunger, fear, and riches, the vision was lost and the whole enterprise hazarded. That is, the question for Abram was this. Will you keep God's promises in view? Can you hold on to what God has said? The question is never, will you be afraid? The question is, how do you respond to fear? Do you trust, trust in God, trust in his promises, or do you run to human effort and ingenuity? Fear and anxiety in themselves are not counter to faith, uh, just as fear is not counter to bravery. Uh, You've uh, probably heard some version of the Nelson Mandela quote that courage is not the absence of fear, but the triumph over it. The brave man is not he who does not feel afraid, but he who conquers that fear. Again, the same is true here. The question is not, are you afraid in life? The question is, what do you do with that fear? Do you walk in fear or in the face of fear, do you walk in faith? Facing hunger will become a regular part of the experience of God's people over time. By the end of Genesis, Abram's whole family will go to live in Egypt because of a severe famine, and that will set them up for the exodus. And once they are brought out of Egypt, there was food scarcity in the wilderness, and the Israelites grumbled in fear. And there God provided for Israel bread from heaven and quail in the desert and water from the rock. But only after reminding his people that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Like Abram, Israel forgot to trust. They walked in fear and not faith. And it would not be until Jesus that someone would come and break that pattern. Uh, Jesus came, and one of his first acts, after being anointed by his father, he he went into the wilderness and fasted for 40 days. And Satan tempted him to turn the stones into bread. But Jesus remembered his father's purposes and trusted God, quoting the book of Deuteronomy, saying, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And this is what it looks like to walk in faith. You, you take God at his word, uh, you believe what he says, and you walk in obedience, whatever the consequences might be, leaving that in God's hands. Abram left the place God told him to go and lied about his wife to save his own skin. Jesus took God at his word, trusted his father, and obeyed, entering into the created world in the incarnation, and then giving his life for his bride in the crucifixion and leaving the consequences in the Father's hands. How can you live like that? Well, you need to know the third point, right? The first, God has made big promises. The second, in the world, you will have trouble. The third, through trouble, God will fulfill his purposes. For Abram, it got worse before it got better. Uh, The Egyptians did see Sarai's beauty. They praised her to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and she was taken into Pharaoh's house. And I want you to notice a couple of things about this. First, uh, what we have here is is really another fall into sin. 
It's a, a repetition of the fall that happened in Ge Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis uh, chapters 2 and 3, the trees in the garden were pleasant and beautiful. Here it is Sarai who is beautiful. In Genesis 3, Eve saw that the fruit was good and she took. Here Sarai is seen as beautiful, verse 14, and she is taken, verse 15. And finally, in Genesis 3, verse 13, God says, what is this that you have done? And in Genesis 12, 18, Pharaoh will say to Abram, what is this that you have done to me? Abram is being portrayed as the guilty party here. And his silence at Pharaoh's question is a tacit admission of guilt. He doesn't answer because he has nothing to say. Finally, Abram will be sent out of Egypt just as Adam was sent out of Eden. The punishment for his sin will be exile. The second thing to notice here is, is this. Sarai, uh, the, the one who is essentially being used as a prop here by both Abram and Pharaoh, is the one loved and cared for by God. Uh, Abram speaks to Sarai in verse 11, but after convincing her to lie for his protection, not considering her safety, after that, Sarai becomes simply the woman in verse 14. She loses her name. She loses her personhood. That is all she is to Abram, a, a woman to be positioned in a way to keep him safe. That, that's all she is to Pharaoh, a, a woman, another woman in his harem, another wife in his polygamous lifestyle. But notice when Sarai gets her name back in the story, when God acts on her behalf in verse 17. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. God cared more for Sarai than Abram did, and God took care of her when Abram did not. Pharaoh and even Abram see Sarai as a pawn to be used for their good, but God dignifies her by acting on her behalf for her good. God acts on behalf of his bride. But the point of this story is that though we are faithless, God remains faithful. Despite our troubles and trials, God will fulfill his purposes. Actually, it's not that. Uh, what this story shows is this. God works not despite suffering, but in and through it to bring about his purposes. And think about it. Famine happens. Abram responds not in faith, but in fear. He abandons God's promised land for Egypt. He seeks strength and help through human means rather than crying out to God. He gets to Egypt. He's afraid again. Once again, rather than crying out to God for protection, he turns to deception and sin. Uh, to save his own skin, he puts his wife at risk. Now both the promises, uh, the promise of land and children, have all but been undone. Abram is without land for settling. He's without a wife. He can't have any children at this point. All hope of God's promise being fulfilled is lost. And it's his own fault. He abandoned the promises of God. He left the promised land. He allowed his wife to be taken into the house of another. Now, when you turn from God, when you sin against him, when you act faithlessly and fearfully, which we all do, how do you expect God will respond? For the most part, we expect judgment or at best a guilt trip. Right? We expect God to kind of cross his arms and tap his foot and say something like, I knew you would act like this. I told you it would be miserable. 
If you would only listen to me, everything would have been great. But no, you had to do your own thing. But that's not what Abram gets. Though Abram is faithless, God remains faithful. God promised that the one who dishonors Abraham, God would curse, and that Abram would be blessed. And that's exactly what God does, even here in Egypt. First, Pharaoh deals well with Abram for Sarai's sake, and Abram becomes a rich man. Verse 16 uh, says, For her sake he dealt well with Abram, and he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. And this is emphasized later on in verse 20 and again in chapter 13, verses 1 and 2, with 13.2 saying, Now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver, and in gold. So God enriches Abram through this event. Second, God sends plagues on Pharaoh's house because of his treatment of Sarai. And through those plagues, God brings his daughter Sarai out of Egypt's grip. God curses those who dishonor Abram and Sarai. Through his, this ordeal, famine, stupidity, Pharaoh, God actually blessed Abram. God works not despite suffering, but in and through it to bring about his purposes. And God is teaching us here that, that greatness comes through affliction. God is here demonstrating how his promises will work. God promised to bless Abram, and what is almost the immediate result? Famine. God promised to bless Abram, and what's the immediate result? Exile. God promised to bless Abram, and what happens next? Abram makes a really bonehead decision and lies about his wife, who then gets taken into Pharaoh's house, threatening the fulfillment of the promise. God promised to bless Abram, and immediately Abram experiences hardship from without, natural disaster, famine, and hardship from within, self-inflicted trouble because of his own stupidity. And what does God do? He shows how his purposes will come about. God blesses Abram through affliction causing him to grow rich through his stay in Egypt. God is showing that only through suffering will his promises come about. As Paul put it in Acts 14.22, which we read earlier, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. The cross comes before the crown, which is, of course, what we see in the gospel. For Jesus, too, it got worse before it got better. Uh, Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, and yet he remained faithful. His hunger did not lead him to abandon God's promises, but gave him an opportunity to fulfill them. But Jesus faced greater hardship than hunger in the wilderness. He was continually harassed throughout his life, the religious leaders opposing him and seeking to trap him at every turn, until they finally sought to put him to death. They hatched a plan, had him arrested, falsely accused, wrongfully convicted, nailed to a tree, and left to die. And how did Jesus respond? Being God in the flesh, he could have gotten down off the cross, called an army of angels to his side, and crushed his enemies. Being a faithful servant of God, like Job, he could have complained. God, you promised to be with me. You promised to watch over me. You promised to provide for me. You promised my enemies would not get the upper hand. God, what are you doing? Jesus could have let his fear win the day. And there was a sense in which he was fearful. In the garden, when he prayed that if possible, the cup passed from him and his sweat poured out like great drops of blood, Jesus was anticipating the cross with trepidation. But remember, fear is not sinful in itself. The question is not, are you afraid? Do you anticipate something with trepidation? The question is, what do you do with that fear? Do you walk in fear or in the face of fear, do you walk in faith? 
And Jesus trusted his Father. For the joy set before him, Hebrews says, he endured the cross. And on that cross, he cried out to his Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. But of course, that's not the end of his story. Uh, Jesus remained faithful, and of course, the Father remained faithful as well. And on the third day, the Father raised Jesus from the dead and brought him up into heaven and uh, seating him at his right hand, giving him the fullness of the promised Holy Spirit, fulfilling God's promises to Abraham in great Abraham's even greater son, Jesus. God fulfilled all of his promises, all of his promises to Abraham, all his promises to Israel, all his promises to David. He fulfilled them when he raised Jesus from the dead and exalted him, giving him all authority in heaven and on earth. God works not despite suffering, but in and through it to bring about his purposes. That's what he did in the cross. And when you believe in Jesus, that is what he will do for you. Jesus promised his disciples, in the world you will have trouble. But take heart, he said, I have overcome the world. See, the Christian hope is not that this life will be easy. Not that it will go our way, not that we will live a life of comfort, not that our plans will succeed, not that our churches will grow, not that our political ambitions will come to fruition, not that we will win the culture wars, not that if we try hard enough and educate them the right way, we can ensure the salvation of our children. Our hope is that for those who belong to Christ, God is working in and through our suffering to bring about his purposes, which he will complete on the last day. As Christ died and rose on behalf of his bride, as he suffered unto glory, as he experienced the cross before the crown, so we suffer with him that we might live with him, Scripture says. And so what do you do when trials come? When you are faced with famine or pain or discomfort, when there is a global pandemic, when uh, there's threat of a world war, when political division uh, seems like it might break out into violence at any moment, how are you tempted to compromise in order to avoid the conflict? What are you willing to deny or lie about like Abram? Where are you tempted to fudge on the truth so that your friends or neighbors or coworkers or classmates won't give you a hard time for your faith? Now is a time of famine and exile and worldly powers. And sometimes Sarai has been taken captive by our own stupidity. But God is on his throne still. He works through the hard things to bring about his purposes. And when you are scared, fearful, uncertain, pray. Pray, Jesus, help me to trust you and walk in faith, not in fear. With the psalmist, say, when I am afraid, I will trust in you, in God whose word I praise. It's not sinful to be afraid, but let us not walk in fear But in the face of fear, walk in faith, knowing that Christ has gone before us. Let's pray. Our Father, uh, lift our eyes to Jesus, our risen Savior and King. Help us to know that the one who passed himself through the valley of the shadow of death is now exalted at your right hand. And help us to know that though we face trials and troubles in the moment, through them you are working working for your good purposes that you will bring about your purposes. And on the last day, we too will rise to dwell with Jesus. Help us to remember these things by your spirit. Keep our eyes on him, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.